How can you reveal a psychopath or a narcissist? Hi and welcome to the Mind Coaching Podcast. My name is Frank Nielsen. I'm a Norwegian podcast host and uh, now turned YouTuber. I also provide uh, calming YouTube videos if you're having problems relaxing or going to sleep. You can uh, check out a new channel called Relaxation for the Mind. I'm also going to put a link in the description. Now over to today's guest. His name is Scott O. Lillenfield. He's a professor of psychology at Emory University and a lecturer in evidence-based treatments and methods. He has written or co-authored over 17 books in psychology and is best known for the books 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology or Brainwashed. We are going to talk about uh, psychopaths and how they behave. And the first 15 minutes, we are talking about uh, myths when it comes to psychology. So I hope you enjoyed this show and please subscribe to YouTube to the Mind Coaching Podcast or Relaxation for the Mind. So thank you so much for listening. I read the book 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology. That really caught my attention. And the first, uh, I must admit that myths about psychology is something that uh, interests me. And uh, lately I've been uh, heading deep into Carl Jung because I think it's an uh, interesting character. But what's the, what was the background for uh, writing this book, uh, Scott? So, yeah, what got us to write the book? We I've always had an interest in in false beliefs, I think partly because I fall prey to them myself so much. And I've always been interested in the processes that can lead otherwise well-educated, intelligent people to believe things that are, are wrong. And that's one of the things that I think has always fascinated me about psychology and, and increasingly our lab is, is becoming interested in, in false and irrational beliefs. I think a secondary reason though is that I became persuaded as did some of my colleagues that some of these false beliefs can have dangerous consequences. So false beliefs about memory and perhaps the brain and learning can actually have detrimental real world consequences and that there weren't enough popular sources available that um, dispel these myths or at least call them into question. What is a false belief, Scott? So that's a tricky one. It comes up a lot because uh, when we were criticized, I think, for some people by using the word myth. And I think what, what I would say there is that uh, science is always provisional and there's very little in science that's uh, completely final. I think we could be pretty sure that the earth isn't flat. I think we'd be pretty sure about that. But most things in science, including psychology, are probably provisional. So it's always possible that some things that we call false could be true, or at least partly true today. But I think what we call false belief is one that is contradicted or at least called the question by an overwhelming, overwhelming body of evidence, that there's so much evidence against the belief that we can at least provisionally conclude that it's, it's wrong, at least in, in its current form. From my perspective, I find that uh, pretty interesting because uh, it's almost what study you look at, there will, there will be some other circumstances that will say that, no, this is not the correct result. <laughs> so we all, almost always found two different studies that show different results. So it's not that easy to say that uh, it's a false belief. It's pretty hard to find the correct belief, I believe, or I do you think I'm... Uh, I'm heading in the wrong direction here, Scott. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that um, it's, it's well, I'd say this. I'd, I'd say it's it's probably easier in, in science. Still not always easy, but in many cases, it's often easier to sort of 
know what's wrong, they don't know what's right. I think we can also be pretty sure what's what's wrong about memory in terms of the way memory doesn't work, but it's often a little bit more difficult to be certain about what is actually true. Do you know how the memory works and uh, is it often that the memory is wrong? So uh, memory is a good example. We do spend a good chunk of our book about myths about memory. And that's I think one good example. We can be pretty sure about how memory doesn't work. We're often less sure about how it does work. We, um, I think we can be sure of a couple of things. We can be sure that memory generally works well enough. I mean, I got into my office today, as did you, and and uh, we're we set up our uh, our call today. We're chatting, so we remembered both of those things. And uh, I can remember where my office is and where to put my key and uh, where to have lunch and so on. So for everyday purposes, memory often works well. But we also know that memory does not work like a a, a video camera or tape recorder, as many people believe it does. Now, there's some controversy about how widespread that belief it is, but we do know from a number of surveys that many people do hold beliefs very much like that, that memory is often perfect, or at least pretty close to perfect, which we know it's not. And uh, we know that memory often is quite fallible, and it's often quite susceptible to suggestion. So if you ask people just to remember what happened yesterday, they can often do okay, they'll forget some things, but they often will will be okay. But if you start suggesting certain things, planting certain suggestions about where they might have been, what they might have had for lunch, who they might have seen, that's where some of the problems come in. So our minds can often be very easily contaminated by subtle cues, subtle prompts, subtle suggestions. And that's where we have to be particularly careful. That's where police have to be careful when questioning eyewitnesses to a crime. That's where therapists have to be careful when asking clients about whether they might have been abused and so on. I think they often have to ask those questions, but they have to be very careful not to subtly and unintentionally implant suggestions that might contaminate their memories. And I think that is pretty hard when you're going to ask the right question to make somebody think it's pretty hard to not lead him in some way. It's very difficult. And I think uh, a lot of research suggests that uh, the best thing to do is, is merely to ask people to remember something. So I think sometimes we tend to, we tend to get a bit too involved and, and too, um, uh, uh, too active in our questioning. Oftentimes we simply have to ask people, tell me what happened and then just step back and allow people to, to tell us what they remember. If we start becoming too involved, we may inadvertently shape people's uh, recollections. And, and I agree, that could be very difficult uh, for us to do. And I also think that we can be, become pretty eager to find out more and we become enthusiastic and, oh, come on, come on, remember more. <laughs> and suddenly well, we have said something that uh, I made a false memory, if that's possible. That's right. Well, psychologists talk about something called confirmation bias, which is a bias that I think we're all prone to, this tendency to seek out evidence consistent of what we believe, to disregard or, or distort evidence that isn't. And we're all prone to that. Questioners, including psychotherapists, including police officers, can be prone to that too. If they have a hypothesis in mind, or even a hunch in mind, they may then ask questions that inadvertently end up confirming that hypothesis. And they may end up thinking their hypothesis is is correct when in fact they've in some ways almost gotten the answer they wanted. From the 50 great myths, uh, Professor, what myth do you think it's most important to uh, to share with the audience? That's a, that's a tough one. There are a lot of myths out there that I think are important to share. I'll, I'll tell you one, I'd be reluctant to say it's the most important, but it's one that does come up a lot. And, and I think it's a powerful myth for everyday life. To me, one of the most powerful myths, and I, I think I probably I've fallen prey to it from time to time, too. In fact, I'd probably fallen prey to a lot of the myths in, in our book. 
is that the primary determinant of our happiness is, is what happens to us. I think that's a very powerful myth. Um, Please elaborate. The primary reason we're either happy or unhappy is, is our external events. So people may assume if, if good things have happened in their lives, they'll be happy. If bad things have happened in their lives, they'll be unhappy. And like a lot of myths, there's a core of truth in that, no doubt we are going to be happier if good things happen to us than if they don't. On the other hand, a lot of research suggests that in the long run, our happiness is surprisingly independent of objective life events. So many people who are, have had a lot of objective things that you would think would lead to happiness, like pay raises or, or getting married or um, uh, getting a um, promotion at a job or winning a sporting event, and some of those people would be happier, much happier than people who have not uh, had those things happen to them. And, and they may be a bit happier, but not much. So the, the ancient uh, Greek philosophers, other philosophers, I think had it right, which is the primary determinant of our happiness is, is less what actually happens to us and more how we appraise or interpret what happens to us. And I think that's, that's sort of, a, there's a lesson that I don't think it necessarily took psychology research to reveal because philosophers have been aware of that for for centuries, arguably millennia, but psychological research, I think, has borne that out in many ways too. So I think too often we end up, and, and again, I think we probably all fall prey to this, looking outside for the causes of happiness rather than inside. And, and a number of excellent psychologists, Dan Gilbert and others, I think, have made that point very, very well. That grass always seems greener on the other side. If we're unhappy in our job, we just think, oh, all I have to do is change my job, and I'll be much happier. And that's not to say that. If you have a desperately unhappy job, you shouldn't look elsewhere, but but you shouldn't have the illusion that, oh, if I've had 10 unhappy jobs in a row, all I need is that 11th job and everything will change. Well, possibly, but it may also be that one has to look inside oneself and see are there ways one can, can better think about what's actually happening to you and maybe evaluate things differently. And I think it's all about the viewpoints. I think that uh, every decision or every everything you experience in life you can uh, find the correct viewpoint and if you find the correct viewpoint for it it can make uh, you experience something you can make you learn and if you make if you can make it uh, sound like a positive experience for you every i think every experience can come out as a great one if you have the right viewpoint for uh, for everything yeah there may be, I mean, be one correct viewpoint but there may be some that are more adaptive and more constructive others and i don't want to be pollyannish look i don't want to say that if you're uh in a concentration camp or something that, that you can, that you can <laughs> search for meaning is a great book <laughs> if you, victor frankel argued yeah. you can find some some meaning at it all i don't want yeah. to imply that you can somehow turn this into happiness i don't think you can but i don't want to be pollyannish about this on the other hand there may be a lot of life circumstances that um, if we appraise them correctly, maybe we can't turn them into happiness, but perhaps we can turn them into something that at least we can find some meaning in and learn to, to cope with more adaptively. And the, the reason I have come to that the conclusion, Professor, is that uh, I've been doing this for all, over three years now and I run different kind of podcasts and one of them I interview people that have done extreme uh, uh, or even they had gone up to K2 or Hemant Everest or survived on the on the Atlantic Ocean for a couple of years by themselves. Uh, and almost always it seems that uh, they find the right viewpoints when there are disaster happenings. And that's the reason. And also 
I read the, the, the Frankel book about search for meaning. So, so it sounds like, uh, at least, that some mental strategy that we can use to tackle some uh, great obstacles is to find a, a viewpoint for uh, the situation we are have upon us. We have also written a book about, uh, so it's called Brainwashed, and it's about uh, what neuroscience can tell us. What's your, uh, your uh, what's your take on that one? Yeah, so with with my uh, my colleague Sally Tell, who's a psychiatrist in in Washington uh, D.C., our nation's capital, we we did write this book called Brainwashed about uh, five or six years ago, and we uh, we argue that that neuro the tools of modern neuroscience like functional brain imaging are wonderful and and they can um, reveal a lot of useful information about the brain, but you also have to be careful not to to overhype them and to say that they can accomplish more than they can, and and really in in some ways. It's, it's a book about a broader issue in, in a lot of psychology and psychiatry, which is premature enthusiasm. So a, a lot of people, I think, in, in our field really believe that, that brain imaging could, could replace modern diagnostic tools in psychology, replace the, the diagnostic interview. It's not done that. Uh, many people believe that brain imaging could really change our, our views of criminal responsibility. I don't think it's yet done that either. And, and I think what we argue here is that we have to be very careful about uh, imputing more meaning, more significance to brain imaging than is actually warranted. I, I think that many people are seduced by brain images. They seem very fancy and, and they, they have the, uh, the premature, the cachet of modern science and they are wonderful to look at, but they often don't tell us quite as much as, as people think they do. And uh, in, in particular, I, I think in my own field of clinical psychology, a lot of people think they tell us about the causes of mental illness, for example, and the press often gets this wrong. The press will, will report on a brain image and they'll say, oh, this tells us something about the, the causes of depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Well, they're not really telling you that. They're merely describing the, the brain in action. They're telling you what the brain looks like right now in response often to even stimulus that's provided by the experimenter but they don't necessarily inform you about the actual causes of mental illness. The other thing we, we, we take on there in that book is the assumption that a number of mental illnesses such as addictions, alcohol, uh, alcoholism, for example, are fundamentally brain diseases and we, we take issue with that claim. We, we don't deny that, that at some level, alcoholism, of course, must uh, be reflected in brain tissue, no doubt about it. And there's also no doubt that there are genetic susceptibilities to some from the substance use that are also manifested in the brain. There's no doubt about that. On the other hand, what we point out is that this idea that alcoholism is a brain disease often carries with it some baggage that we don't think is all that well supported. So many people assume, I think incorrectly, that because alcoholism is a quote brain disease, that means that people with addictions have no control over their drinking. Uh, they have no choice. And, so on, uh, and that uh, when something is in the brain, people fall prey to what psychologists call essentialism. Somehow, it's it's in the brain; you can't get it out, <laughs> pull over it. But in fact, we know that many people manage, although it's not easy, it can be very, very difficult, manage to get over their addiction. So even though there are clearly brain correlates and, and brain susceptibilities to addiction, it does not mean that addiction uh, is unstoppable or that people have no control over it. So. That's another example of where I think brain science has been overhyped 
misused and sometimes misinterpreted, not just by the popular media, by the way, but sometimes by neuroscientists themselves. You said something about the confirmation bias uh, earlier, here, Professor, and I wanted to elaborate on confirmation bias because uh, I think that it's a big issue in our lives these days with the internet and all the social media. Yes, I think uh, some people have termed it, I, I think my friend James Herbert coined this term, I believe, but um, uh, some people call it the, the mother of all biases, and maybe it is. It's It really is a powerful bias, and, and it's one I think we're all prone to. I know I'm prone to it. And you mentioned social media, and I think confirmation bias, which again is this tendency to, to seek out evidence consistent with what we believe or might believe, and, and I like to call it the three Ds of confirmation bias to deny, dismiss, or distort evidence that isn't. That's also an important part of confirmation bias. I think it comes into play in social media, and, and I worry very much that it, uh, it may be exacerbating political divides in, in our country, and I know it's certainly true in many European countries too. We, we see an increasing political polarization, and there's often uh, a rise in, in extremism on, on both sides of the political spectrum. And I think with with the internet and social media, many people, and I have to say myself included, got it all wrong. I, I think I thought that once the internet started and, and social media became uh, popular with Twitter and so on, that people's beliefs would become more moderate, that people would become less polarized, because after all, now with the internet, at least in, in free countries like Norway and the US where we're free to access whatever we want, we can get exposed to information from all different points of view. So I would have assumed, I think I did assume that, oh, well now, now people will get less extreme because people will hear the other point of view. The problem is in part because of confirmation bias, people don't want that. <laughs> so people have a particular political view. What we, we know It's is even a, worse. <laughs> yeah, right. Not always, I mean, there are exceptions, but very often people will, would only seek out evidence that supports their view and, and also make it more complicated even when they do read evidence that doesn't support their view, they may selectively reinterpret it uh, in, in a way that's congenial to their views. And, and um, so as a result, uh, I worry very much, I'm hardly the only person to, to worry about this, that the internet and, and social media have allowed people to create what um, a few people in the US have, have termed the daily me. Um, but by the daily me, what that means is if you're very politically engaged, for example, you have very strong points of view, you can create your own 24-7 menu or cafeteria of sources on, on the newspaper sources, the internet, social media that support your own views. And you can create a little echo chamber, a bubble in which that's all you get exposed to. So th that's, I think, where confirmation bias is something we have to all be concerned about and worry about. I, one thing that surprises me, I have to say, is that in, in U.S. education, and I think I was prone to this too, I don't think I did a very good job of this, maybe until a bit more recently, at least in American education, I don't think we spend a lot of time teaching students about this. I don't think we teach students about the dangers of their own confirmation bias or, or teaching them to be aware of it. I, I actually worry that we may almost, in some ways, do the opposite. We may encourage them to, to try to uh, follow their confirmation bias. I'll make one point before ending here in this regard. When I took history classes, for example, in high school and, and uh, some related classes in college, I, I was almost taught a recipe for confirmation bias. I was often taught if you have a, have a historical topic 
find a find a thesis, make a very strong argument, and keep finding evidence for that argument. And then many, many history courses in high school, for example, do that. Uh, fi find your thesis topic, make your argument, and, and find evidence for it. Well, that's that's not a good way of teaching history. What we should be doing is teaching people to seek out evidence that is inconsistent with their thesis that might challenge their view. So, so confirmation bias, I think, is something that is, is powerful. And I think it's, I'm not sure the bias itself is becoming stronger, but it is a bias we have to watch out for ever more in this, this age of the new media. What is your, uh, what is your take on uh, narcissism, for example? Narcissism. So it's a, it's, a, it's a trait we've done a bit of research on in our lab. Um, I would say I'm, I'm, there are a lot of people who are more expert in it than I am, but narcissism is a, um, it seems to be a broad personality trait that can become pathological in, in uh, some extremes. So narcissism is often defined as an extreme, often inflated sense of self-importance. And um, there is some evidence, but it is hotly contested and it gets a bit more technical that I'll get into here, but there's some evidence that narcissism may be on the rise in, in the US. Some, some surveys suggest it may be increasing at least among college students. I don't know if that's true, but it, it may be. Um, why is that, you think? Uh, why, why might it be going up? Mm. I don't know if it is. Um, uh, there are a lot of both sociological and psychological reasons why that may be the case. There are changes in parenting practices, at least in many Western countries, where there's often more of an emphasis on so-called helicopter parenting, where, where um, kids are, are often not given the same opportunities. They're often maybe pampered, for example, in ways that they were not before. That's one one hypothesis. The uh, the media may reinforce it too, uh, and social media may reinforce it too, where we're there's much more of an emphasis on self-expression and so on. I don't know if it's true. It's also possible that the apparent rise in narcissism scores is actually just reflecting the fact that people are more willing to admit to it because a lot of this comes from, from questionnaire data. So a lot of people are saying they're more narcissistic. Maybe they're just, maybe it's just more socially desirable now than it once was. So people are more willing to say they are when they're not. But uh, but I don't know. Um, we've done a bit of research on narcissism in, in politics, and we did a, a sort of psychohistorical study of narcissism in the U.S. presidents, and we've got a lot of questions about that in light of our current executive in the U.S. And some people have argued maybe a bit high on that trait. And what we found, and it's a limited study because we had, we had historians rate the presidents on these traits and that, that may be subject to some, some biases, so it's not perfect. But we found that, that among our past US presidents, narcissism seemed to function a bit as a double-edged sword. So what that means is that what we found is that presidents who are rated by historians as being more narcissistic seem to actually be more effective leaders. They were reported as being better crisis managers and setting agendas. They were often more effective communicators. But interestingly, we also found that they were reported to be more unethical. So they often uh, seemed to abuse their subordinates more. They were often brought up more for impeachment proceedings by our members of Congress and so on. So it may be a bit of a mixed bag <laughs> to be a, uh, a narcissistic uh, president. But um, uh, so uh, I don't know what, what voters should make of that, but if they're, they're voting for a, a leader who's highly narcissistic, they may just want want to be aware that they may be getting more than they bargained for. But doesn't it make sense that uh, for a person that would uh, rule, the, I say rule the rule the world and 
have my fingers up <laughs> uh, rule the western world and uh, and uh, in, a, in the US there are over 300 million people uh, I think uh, then it have to be some kind of narcissistic person to have that responsibility don't you think don't you think yeah there's uh, that's a good question there there's some suggestion out there we didn't see it in our data but we our sample size of course is quite small because we're only about 40 or so u.s presidents but there's a bit of suggestion that with narcissism there may be a bit of a middle ground there where there's sort of a healthy dose of narcissism may actually be good and and i suspect to to, be, to want to run for for the leader of say the united states you have to have a big ego there's no doubt about that so you wouldn't want someone who's totally lacking in self-confidence the u.s president or uh, uh, what have you so there may be a certain amount of narcissism, a little dose of it that might be actually adaptive or healthy, but maybe when it gets to be too extreme, that might verge into what we call narcissistic personality disorder, which is more pathological. So people with that disorder often have uh, an extreme sense of self-importance that is often out of touch with reality. They often have extreme what we call entitlements. They often think they deserve things that other people don't uh, deserve, and they, and they may sometimes engage in, in reckless and antisocial behavior. So it, it may be, when this is, is not conclusive, it may be that there's kind of this uh, Goldilocks zone in the middle where it's good to be a, a, have a big ego and be self-confident, but if it gets too extreme, that may cause interpersonal problems. I want to ask you a little bit more about that one, because uh, in today's society, I think that we are putting a people in a lot of different categories for example narcissistic uh, personality disorders what what exactly is a person uh, narcissistic personality disorder so um yeah I, and I, I i think when we put people in these categories we're probably pigeonholing them a little bit there's always a risk for that we have to remember that when we we use these diagnoses we're, we're not implying that everyone in the category is the same we're really saying they're the same in one potentially one way but People with narcissistic personality disorder undoubtedly are, are very different from each other too. They have different interests and backgrounds and other associated personality traits and so on. When we say someone has narcissistic personality disorder, what we mean is a, a pattern of uh, excessive uh, self-importance and uh, that, that causes either distress to them, although that's rare, uh, but more often it can, it reaches the point where it causes impairment interpersonally. So it, it, it causes problems, for example, with their coworkers, it may cause problems with their friends and romantic partners and so on. So when, when that excessive, when that sense of self uh, importance becomes so extreme that it begins to cause problems in everyday life or more rarely distress for the person directly, then we, we uh, refer to that as narcissistic personality disorder. So some of the, the core attributes of that disorder, again, are uh, a sense of excessive self-admiration, oftentimes a kind of pathological envy of people who are doing well. Most of us, if a friend of ours succeeds, we're happy for them. And, and um, that's wonderful. You did, you did well. A rising tide lifts all boats and so on. I'm, I'm delighted. But what you see is that people with that disorder often are unhappy or, or envious of people with those uh, with other those kinds of successes i mentioned entitlements earlier that's that's a core attribute of narcissism and and some data suggests that may be a maybe the core perhaps is that people with entitlements often think they deserve special favors that other people uh, don't think they deserve we probably all can all see people who 
like to cut in line in restaurants or, or uh, drive faster because they, they, they think, well, I'm in a rush. I have to get there. Well, <laughs> we're probably in a rush too. And we're probably hungry too, but no, I'm, I'm more important. I have to eat first or I have to get to, to work earlier than you and so on. We often see that they, um, uh, they both over-idealize themselves and they also think that they deserve only the most uh, wonderful person in the world. So, and they often have fantasies of unlimited success, unlimited power, and so on. So again, having a few of those is, uh, is, is maybe not such a bad thing. I think many of us may fantasize about being a great soccer player or a great leader, a great writer, and so on. Most of us would, would love to be a great, I would, I, when I played, um, is what you call football in Europe, uh, soccer in the US. I, I fantasized about being a great football soccer player too when I was high, in high school. Unfortunately, I soon realized I didn't have the talent for it. So. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I, it's, it's fine to have to kind of indulge in, in some of those fantasies. But if they get so extreme that one starts to believe that they might be real, <laughs> that might be problematic. What I found, uh, I, was, I was thinking and... Uh reflecting while you were explaining how this disorder works and from my perspective and experience i see that a lot of extroverted uh, people with uh, high high regards of imp uh, impulsiveness impulsive this being very impulsive how this kind how this kind of trait uh, maybe that's just a coincidence <laughs> but it seems like it especially people that uh, are extremely good in business and have this uh, extroverted uh, and high in impulsiveness is uh, pretty high on this list. Yeah, I think that's right. No, I, I don't think you're imagining things. The, the Most of the research, not to get too technical, but most research suggests that there seem to be two rather different flavors of narcissism. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The, uh, the two flavors are what are sometimes called grandiose uh, narcissism versus vulnerable narcissism. So the, the grandiose narcissist is someone who is very dominant, uh, flamboyant. You're right, they sometimes can have impulse control problems. They often like to be the center of attention. And for people with those kinds of traits, so some people have argued that maybe our current president has some of those traits. I won't get into that, but some people have argued that. Uh, uh, even maybe clear examples are people like Benito Mussolini, for example, a very clear example of someone who probably was a grandiose narcissist, maybe other leaders, Berlusconi, and, Italy has been talked about that way and so on. Uh, for those people, you do see a lot of extroversion. That's, that's, that's right. Uh, and oftentimes, those people can be quite persuasive and often quite charming. Um, uh, whether that charm is uh, genuine or not is, a, uh, is debatable, and, and how long it will last is also debatable. There's some evidence suggesting that people may find people with that kind of narcissism very charming likable at first but if you wait six months maybe not so much that charm may wear, wear up after a while once you get to know them better although not always so, so that's grandiose narcissism and, and for those folks you do see that kind of extreme extroversion particularly what is sometimes called surgent extroversion which is kind of a tendency to like being the center of attention being a good leader being dominant and so on enjoying power for vulnerable narcissism though um, the, the vulnerable narcissist is actually more introverted so People who are high in, in vulnerable narcissism tend to be very fragile. They tend to be very thin-skinned. Some people have called it, jokingly called it, uh, Woody Allen narcissism because it because uh, it kind of reflects the, the the character that Woody Allen portrayed in many of his movies. Person who's self-absorbed, 
um, uh, not necessarily extroverted, but someone who's kind of thin-skinned, very sensitive to criticism, and so on. Uh, there's some debate about whether that latter kind of narcissism is, is actually narcissism or not. There's just a debate about that, but people with that, that form of narcissism do score highly on established measures of narcissism. They tend to be more introverted than extroverted. So they are uh, the people that really thrive on being the victim in their own head. Uh, in some cases, that's right. Not always, but but I think that's right. They they may sometimes wallow in their victimhood, and um, uh, in particular, they they're often very sensitive to perceived slights from others, very sensitive to perceived criticism, and. Um, and of course, some people the some people argued that the, the most dangerous combination maybe people are high in both. So there are cases where even though um, uh, I mentioned the extroversion introversion split, but there are cases where people can have features of both, where you can have someone who's very flamboyant, very dominant, very outgoing, and yet someone at the same time who is also very sensitive to criticism and very thin skin. What you'll see is that those people often tend to retaliate very harshly against people who criticize them. So that that combination of those two traits may be particularly dangerous. You may have a combustible combination of someone who's very dominant and outgoing and, and very power hungry, but is also very sensitive to criticism. Some people have argued that that combination of traits may be the most dangerous. What can happen if a person have that uh, have those two traits and it's uh, really really getting hard for that person what what can happen you think i'd say watch out <laughs> <laughs> stay away from those people i think we've all known a few of them uh the, the, the better the better off you uh, you will be i think i think what can happen is that they will often uh strike back against their enemies and they're often angry and hostile they can often be quite charming and when and, and they can often be uh quite nice to people who like them i think one paradox of narcissism that puzzles people is that some people will say gee he was he was often my my best friend until i criticized him or her and then then he, he or she became my worst enemy and and you'll often see that if you're you're nice to them and you agree with them they, they often will love you and uh, show a lot of loyalty to them but if you criticize them then then you have to be very very careful because if you uh, produce a an ego threat to them if you challenge their ego then they may strike back. There, there's some interesting laboratory work by um, a psychologist who was in America now, now lives in Australia, Roy Baumeister, who um, showed that if you criticize people who are high in narcissism, uh, he, he did something where they would write, not to get too technical, but they would write a little essay, for example, about a topic. And then he, he, he uh, arranged the design where some people got harsh criticism of that essay. So, so they would get criticism back where someone would say, that was a very bad essay. That was one of the worst essays I've read and so on. And then they had the chance to retaliate against the person who gave them that feedback using a, a big blast of noise or electric shock, for example. And um, what you find is that people who are high in narcissism are often very likely to try to get back at the person who, who criticized them using loud noises or, or shock, what have you. Interestingly, people with garden variety, high self-esteem do not do that. So it's not the same thing as self-esteem. That's a common question that comes up. People who just think highly of themselves are not likely to show that pattern. It's something specific to narcissism. It looks like they, an e ego thing. That's right. Exactly. Um, just curious. 
we talked about the viewpoints earlier. And from what I can understand is that uh, narcissism, narcissism is uh, about uh, one person's ego and it will defend this ego for everything it birth, birth. And is it possible to change a person with high regards to narcissism if you change your viewpoint towards their ego? Is it possible to change, um, for them to change themselves or is it possible for us to change them, do you think? Um, I don't know, I think the, it's a great question and it's embarrassing that psychology does not have a good answer to that question. There are at this point no what we call empirically supported psychotherapies, no scientifically supported psych psychotherapies out there for changing narcissism. So we don't really know how to do it. Is it possible that in dealing with a narcissist, you might be able to deal with them more effectively by by uh, calming their ego? Possibly. I, I think I have to be tentative here, but I think one one technique that some people are proposed, and I've I found it somewhat helpful anecdotally when I've dealt with narcissistic people is when you do give them criticism, try to self-affirm them in some other way. That is, try to uh, boost their ego in some other way when you're also criticizing them, because that might make the, the wound less painful. Uh, so uh, uh, if you can somehow boost their ego in some other way at the same time you're delivering the criticism, that may help a little bit. Don't you think that uh, a lot of... Uh viewpoints will change when it's come to reflection and what i'm curious about if is that if you get a person that is high narcissism and you get this person to reflect will you ever get this person to see their weak points when it comes to uh, their ego or will they not reflect at it all at it at all because their narcissism is so high do you think yeah i don't know i i think it's difficult hmm. i think that um just curious uh, <laughs> that, but I, I suspect that it might not help very much. I'll tell you why there, there's some interesting psychological research on something called bias blind spot. And I, I think we all have a bias blind spot, meaning that we, um, uh, there's a researcher at, at Princeton university in, in the U S Emily Pronin, who I believe coined that term and bias blind spot is the fact that we we're often pretty good at, at seeing biases, including confirmation bias in other people, but not very good at seeing it in also, ourselves. So true. So, uh, and I'm, again, we're probably all proud of that to some degree, but w we found in some research that uh, we have not yet published that people who are high in narcissism have a particularly high bias blind spot, maybe not surprisingly. So they're, they're, they're even less prone to see their own biases. So I, I actually worry it could backfire. I don't know, but I expect if you ask them to self-reflect, they're going to think about this and they're going to say, you know what? I'm thinking about this. And I actually, I don't think I have any biases. <laughs> so true. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, lots of other people around me have biases. They yeah, can, they not can, me. You know, <laughs> but you know, I don't, I don't think I have any biases. So I'm actually more convinced that I'm right. So <laughs> sure, but I think in many of them, I'm not sure it would help, but I, I worry it might actually backfire. <laughs> I don't know. I agree with you 100%. I'm just, uh, I think that uh, all of us have experienced people that are high in narcissism and we can, we can recognize these traits. What is the difference between a psychopath and a narcissist? Oh, that's a great question. That comes up a lot too, the difference between a psychopath and a narcissist. There, there is overlap between psychopathic personality or, or psychopathy, as we sometimes call it, and uh, grandiose narcissism, that, that kind of flamboyant dominant type of narcissism I talked about earlier. 
And um, th there's quite a bit of overlap. What you'll see is that people who are psychopathic tend to be very, um, also often very charming at first. They also can be quite grandiose, quite flamboyant, quite interpersonally dominant. So that's, that's the area of overlap. The differences are that people who are psychopathic also tend to be quite guiltless and, and um, uh, often don't have much of a moral compass. So that, that's often one of the key differences. So there are, there are definitely narcissistic people out there who still do have a conscience, who have a sense of guilt, for example, and are also capable of, of deep attachments to other people. Um, but the big addition is that people who are psychopathic often are uh, severely lacking in guilt, and oftentimes they are severely lacking in empathy. You'll see that in narcissistic people too, by the way, they're often lacking in empathy too, but psychopathy that the empathy deficits may be particularly extreme you also will see probably more even more severe impulse control deficits in people who are psychopathic they often have very poor impulse control and in some cases may engage in, in behaviors that are antisocial that go against society and maybe even illegal if you have uh, are high in uh, a psychopathic trait are you born that way, or is it the environment that have led you to become that way? So most of the evidence suggests, like most psychological traits, it's a mix of both. So there's nature and nurture going on there. There's good evidence suggesting that there are genetic susceptibilities to psychopathy. I, I don't know what they are. I, my own hunch is that they're not specific to psychopathic personality itself. My hunch is that the genetic susceptibilities are probably to, to broader personality traits, like being callous or not being attachments to people, having impulse control deficits, uh, and so on. So there are genetic susceptibilities, but they're also clearly environmental factors too, but we don't really know what they are. So we don't really know what those environmental contributions to psychopathy are early on. Um, some of them may be related to parenting. It could be that parents who can imbue their kids with a, a kind of healthy sense of pride early on and healthy self-esteem might be able to steer their kids away from psychopathy, but we don't know that for sure. So there, there definitely are environmental contributions, but, but embarrassingly, we don't know much about what those are. But what traits do a psychopath have? So the, uh, the answer to that question, I think, comes largely from a, uh, a psychologist who actually practiced, a psychiatrist who practiced a couple of hours away from me here in, in Georgia. Uh, Hervey Cleckley was a, a psychiatrist at uh, Medical College of Georgia, it was then called 1940s, and Cleckley delineated 16 traits of psychopathy. And if, if your listeners ever want the best book on psychopathy, it's called The Mask of Sanity, which you can you can now get on a, a PDF, by the way, for free on the on the web. So The Mask of Sanity is the best clinical description of psychopathy. And Cleckley's 16 traits are, are still, I think, one of the best descriptions of psychopathy. You can boil Cleckley's traits down, though, into probably three broad traits, as my, my friend Christopher Patrick and others have argued. So the three broad overarching traits of psychopathy, according to Patrick and colleagues, are number one, uh, meanness or coldness. So psychopathic people tend to be cold. They're often emotionally detached. They're often, they often don't have much of a sense of guilt. They often are, uh, uh, they don't have much empathy or love or deep love for other people. So that's the first set of traits. That's coldness or meanness. Second set of traits is more what they call disinhibition, which is kind of poor impulse control. 
they often have a hard time controlling their impulses. They also uh, often tend to blame other people for their problems. They're often aggressive. They have a short fuse and so on. And the third set of traits, which is a bit more controversial, although we, we see it as important to psychopathy, is what they term boldness. And by boldness, what we mean is that people who are in high in psychopathy are often relatively fearless. They're often physically fearless. And also, very importantly, they often have very little social anxiety. And they're often uh, very, very dominant. And they're often surprisingly immune to stress. And what you often see there, along with the boldness, is that they're often very charming, very charismatic. So the way I think of psychopathy is that it's a bit of a paradox. So what you see in psychopathic people, and your listeners have probably all met people like this, is that because of these traits, you'll often see a confusing pattern of attributes. On the one hand, they can often be very charming and poised and kind of fun to be with and so on. Um, but on the other hand, they can often be very dishonest, and that's another key feature of psychopathy. They can often be quite immoral, and they can often be very difficult to get to know, and they often don't have close emotional attach attachments to people. So the psychopath is someone who does is not what he or she seems to be. They, they seem to be very nice on the surface, very affable, very friendly, often very charming, and they may often seem like the person you want to put your trust in, but in fact, they're people who fundamentally oftentimes are not trustworthy at all. So the, the prototype of the con artist, the confidence artist, or the wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, all of these, I think, probably capture pretty well the, the psychopath, someone who seems nice on the surface, someone who seems like a trustworthy, kind person, but someone who is actually someone you can't trust. Do they have uh, love for themselves or for uh, their family or kids? Think? Uh, so I think they, uh, if they do love anyone, probably it's themselves. Um, I think they can, um, it's, it's debatable how much deep love they have for their family. I think certainly they can be fond of their family uh, and children, no doubt about that. And they, and they can be fond of friends, so it's not like they don't have their likes or dislikes, but the extent to which they have truly deep love, truly deep attachments, I think is debatable. And the reason I say that is what you're likely to see in psychopathic people is that when a relationship of theirs breaks up, say a love relationship, they may often not be as upset as you would think. I, I have to be a bit careful here, but I'll talk about someone in, in my personal life many, many years ago. I won't give any identifying details, but I knew someone who, by the way, I liked, um, <laughs> uh, who I would describe as sort of a classic psychopath. And I, I liked this person. He's very charming, but he wasn't very honest. But he was in a, a romantic relationship with a woman who was just crazy about him. And I could see why he was a sort of good-looking guy, and he was uh, very interesting, very smart, very successful in his chosen field, very interesting, and she was just crazy about him. And uh, I understand it, uh, and I knew her too a little bit, as I understand it, one morning he kind of woke up and just decided he was kind of bored with her. And uh, sort of said, you know, I, I'm sorry about this, but I decided to end it. And she was just shocked because she had almost no inkling this was coming, and she was utterly devastated. She spiraled into a depression for weeks afterwards and he was kind of bummed out for about a day and then that was about it you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh, i kind of miss her and that's it got over it very quickly. <laughs> i think you're, you're often likely to see that pattern very much so yeah he liked her and mm. he kind of enjoyed having her around but I, i don't think he had the kind of deep love that most of us associate with a, a powerful romantic relationship but you said something about that um, they are uh, often not stressed and um uh, from 
what I think and from my perspective, uh, I believe that people that uh, have um, have intense feelings and also are analytical, uh, experience uh, fear, anxiety, and get stressed about things. So, if if that is correct, uh, is it uh, then for people that are psychopathic in nature, do they have less uh, intense feelings? Um, that that's what Clickley, the person, the psychiatrist I talked about earlier, argued that, that they do have less intense feelings. So he, he that was one of his sixteen criteria was uh, was sort of a uh, an absence of strong emotion, strong affect. I think it's debatable. He, he he acknowledged it was not clear. I think where where it's most clear is I think the the feelings that I think they seem to be lacking in are more social emotions like love for others, empathy for others, caring for others. Collectively, actually argued. I don't know if he was right that they are even lacking in in deep anger. So the psychopaths can get angry, but Collectively argued that. They, they seem to be largely incapable of what I think he called deep wholehearted anger. Most of us can, can relate to watching something on the news or something else where we, we really get indignant. We, we, see, we see an injustice and we get deeply upset about it when we, we see someone um, being wronged by another person or someone being wronged by another country. We, we often have very, a, a deep sense that this is wrong. We have to do something about this. A lot of the American civil rights movement, I would, I would argue, in, in the 1560s here in the U.S. was born out of a healthy sense of, of moral anger and indignation. This is not right. We have to do something about this. And where psychopathic people, correctly argued, yeah, they can get annoyed at things and they can often blow up and scream, but oftentimes they get over it very quickly. I, I once worked with a 13-year-old on a psychiatric unit who I would describe as one of the most psychopathic people I've ever met. He's very charming. And uh, he uh, tortured animals and, and beat up other kids and lied, cheated in school and so on. Incredibly psychopathic kid. And uh, it was interesting because I, I was sort of treating him. And I, I was initially puzzled by this, but I came to understand this. I would have to discipline him. He, he was on a behavioral program where I had to discipline him and sometimes punish him with, with um, a loss of some privileges. And when I would do that, he would scream at the top of his lungs and call me all kinds of names using language I can't repeat here. Uh, profanity and he was just uh, totally explosive and and, and he see he clearly was angry but then I'd see him the next day he would be totally over it uh, he, seemed, he seemed to have he seemed to let go of it very very quickly and I'm not sure his anger was very very deep frankly I think he was annoyed and blew up almost narcissistically at me because I had, I had uh, disciplined him but I, I'm not sure this was a kid who was capable of, of truly a, a deep healthy sense of anger uh, that many of us can experience why do you think that uh people with these kind of traits often uh, misuse animals, for example? Um, I don't know that either. That's very interesting. I think my, my hunch is that um, psychopathic traits that are themselves not related to uh, hurting or killing animals. I think there has to be psychopathy plus something else. I think a lot of psychopathic people uh, may not uh, love animals, but I'm not sure they are necessarily harm animals. I think to me, the question you ask is a very powerful one because what we're talking about there is a set of traits that is related to sadism, which is is, is actively uh, uh, actively enjoying the suffering of other uh, people, other animals, 
And I don't think we have, a. I think to me, that's always been one of the great gaps in psychological knowledge is why it is that some people aren't merely indifferent to the suffering of animals, but actively enjoy it. So descriptively, I can give an answer to that, which is that these people have sadistic traits. What it is that's actually going on in their brains that gives their brains a little jolt of excitement when they see an animal being hurt, which is something I myself simply cannot uh, uh, relate to in any way, shape, or form, is I think something we just do not understand as psychologists. There are for sure a lot of things we do not know at this moment. <laughs> this is an awfully important one. One of the few things we do know, though, is that, and again, this is more of a description than an explanation, but one of the things we do know from research is that hurting animals, uh, pets, for example, dogs, cats, and so on, in childhood is a very bad predictor. Uh, it's a very negative predictor. So uh, ironically, it may actually be more predictive than hurting other people. So if a very young kid really actively enjoys torturing dogs or cats or what have you, that uh, that may be a kid you really want to keep an eye on um, because that, that may be something that foretells some, some later behavioral problems. Because that's not normal. Most most kids, myself included, love animals, love dogs and cats. And, and so if, if someone is not like that when they're four or five years old, that may be a dangerous sign. A little bit back to the psychopathic trait. It seems like that must be the perfect warrior. Uh, <laughs> the uh, a perfect lawyer? That warrior. Uh, and lawyer. <laughs> You're not the lawyer. Warriors and lawyers, right? Um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, well, I think. I think maybe a core truth in that. Oh, I think to be an effective warrior and also an effective lawyer, um, you also have to be able to see ahead and and um, foretell things. So, there, again, my my hunch is that some of the traits involved in psychopathy might be linked to being a good soldier, but also to be a good soldier, you also have to be willing to, to conform to a certain degree. You have to be able to willing to, to conform and obey. Um, um, and psychopathic people are generally not very good at taking orders because they're often very defiant and oppositional. So it could be, you want some of the traits, particularly the fearlessness, the adventurousness, the, the relative lack of anxiety, but you might want those to be conjoined with some traits that are not typical of psychopathy, which is also a love of one's country and and a certain a loyalty to one's army and, and one's country and so on, which is something that psychopathic people don't have. So I suspect in the heat of the moment, psychopathic people might be good at leading a charge, for example, in the middle of war. But I'm not sure in the long run that actually make the best warriors because I think they'd probably be the kind of people who would desert pretty quickly because I'm not sure they would have the deep kind of emotional connection or loyalty to one's cause or country that would be needed to really uh, commit oneself to a long-term effort to protect one's country this was a very interesting conversation uh, scott just as the last question what questions keep you up at night or make you make it so interesting that you have to go and uh, go and uh, reflect over them and really yeah. think hard yeah. about oh <laughs> what is this <laughs> There are a lot of them. It's a great question. And uh, there are questions that keep me up at night. Actually, one of the ones you mentioned is just that, is is why uh, why are some people cruel to other people? And and I think to me, that's one of the most profound questions in, in all psychology. I don't think we have a very good answer to it. I really don't. Although it's, it's arguably among the most important. I think another deep question, because I am very interested in 
in our biases is what to do about it. Because I, I, I see, and I may be wrong, but I, I see confirmation bias in its extreme forms as being a real potential threat to humanity, this tendency to only see evidence that is consistent with what we believe, and also even more extreme certainty. There's nothing wrong with holding strong views. I have strong views about some things. I, I like to root for certain sports teams, and I have my political views and so on, but, but to believe that um, you are so correct, you're so certain you're right, that you know you're right and that other people are, are completely wrong, and even worse, that other people are so wrong they need to be eliminated. That is very dangerous. What to do about that? How to combat that tendency, which I think is is perhaps the single most major cause of violent extremism in the world is something I don't know. I think E.O. Wilson has talked about this too, is, is tribalism. You're a very tribalistic species, very quickly formed moral tribes, as John Haidt and others have, have argued. And I think tribalism is, again, it, it can assume healthy forms if we're for a sports team or having fun and, and uh, enjoying that, having beer and, run, and uh, enjoying that, that's fine. Uh, but sometimes that kind of tribalism can take on very malignant forms and, and can lead to a desire to, to harm others. What to do about that problem is something that does keep me up at night because I don't think we have a good handle or understanding of it. From my perspective, I think a lot of the traits uh, have something to do about biology. That's a uh, it's, that is in our genes in some way. But I had I had a thought here the other day, uh, Scott. I was uh, on a summer holiday in Denmark with my family, and I was uh, taking a ferry back to Norway. And when I was walking uh, 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 through this ferry, I saw a lot of people that uh, they didn't look that happy. It uh, they in some way looked. Uh, that they have given up, they were uh, they were tired and had made some bad decisions in their life. And I, I walked outside of the ferry and uh, sat down on the sun deck, and I was reflecting, what's uh, the difference between me that was pretty happy on this uh, trip and the people around me? And uh, what I come to think was that it's all about the decisions that we take. We can take some great decisions, and we can take some bad decisions it all comes down to the decisions that we take and to take great decisions we need to reflect and i think that uh, in our society i don't think that we have any time to reflect over our decisions i do not think that the people that was on this ferry that was tired ever reflected over the decisions that they take yeah i think that's actually true to that i i agree with you i think to me another um factor is is not merely our decisions, but also the way we come to grips with them. I think we all make mistakes in life. I've made my share. But I think it's one thing to, to say I've made, I did some things wrong with the benefit of hindsight. I now realize I made some mistakes, but I need to move on. And, I can't, uh, and at the time I made the best call, you know, maybe I shouldn't have married this person, or maybe I shouldn't have got divorced this person, or I, maybe I took the wrong job. But with a bit of hindsight, it's easy to see that. Recognize, you know, at that time, I made the best decision I could. It wasn't necessarily perfect, but I made the best decision I could given the evidence I had. I was wrong, but that's okay, but I need to look forward rather than backward. So to me, that's another big distinction between happy and unhappy people is that unhappy people are, are so often looking 
back toward the past and writing what they did, I think people are happier say, yeah, I made, I made some right calls. I made some bad calls, but that's okay. I have to, I have to move on and I can't, I can't regret the mistakes I've made because it's not too late to undo some of what I've done that's wrong and, and do better in the future. I really like the work of uh, Carol Dweck. Have you heard about her? Yes. Hmm. And, uh, that's and her uh, work is similar to that is that there are the, the mindsets we adopt can be important if we, if we see uh, certain things as, as fixed. If we think, for example, we, uh, we can't change who we are in some respects, then that may often be maladaptive. Now you mentioned genes, genes may, uh, impose some constraints on who we are. I, I came to realize I mentioned earlier on that I could never be a great soccer player. <laughs> I, thought this, I thought I could ever become a great nuclear physicist. <laughs> so maybe important to come to grips with what you, you, you do and can't do. On the other hand, there are a lot of attributes that are are, uh, are are malleable, are changeable to some degree. And and the mindsets we adopt there can be very, very important, realizing that we often can improve in ways that we may not often appreciate can, can be a very important spur to psychological growth. That is so true. And that was also the reason that I really enjoyed the work of uh, Carol Dweck, because uh, at least it helped in my life. But to think about learning and having a having a learning mindset instead of instead of a fixed mindset that uh, really helped. Where can people follow you, uh, Scott? I'm sorry. Where can people follow you if they want? Oh, to sorry. Follow I'm sorry. Where work? can people follow me? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not much of a social media type, so I'm 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 not on Twitter. But um, uh, if people uh, Google me, what they'll see is I, I do some writing for the general public, and um, they can look at my webpage, and I'll I will update it pretty frequently, so uh, people can hopefully stay tuned on some some new books. Hopefully, I'll be writing before too long, as well as some articles. Okay. And if people go to um, people are a little more nerdy and want to read some academic articles, they can uh, they can go to Google Scholar and, and stick my name in there, and they'll see some updated articles that I've been writing. There is as well. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I really, really uh, have to say that uh, I recommend the photos we're looking for. Not recommend the books "Brainwashed" and "50 Myths of Modern Psychology." I really enjoyed, enjoyed both books, and I listened to them on Audible, if I remember correctly. So, uh, again, thank you so much for the uh, time, Scott, and uh, have a great holiday if you're going to have some holiday today this year. <laughs> All right, I enjoyed being here. Thanks again. Have a great day. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye.